Hey Life Canton, Roger here, Director of Student and Young Adult Ministry. Uh, so glad that you're with us today, whether you're a brand new listener or a returning listener, we're just glad to have you. Uh, if you are a brand new listener, be sure to like, subscribe, follow, all that good stuff so you can get uh, more of our podcasts when we put them out. Um, I'll be putting out another extra one soon here, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but either way, if you're a returning listener, uh, someone who is involved in our community regularly, I just want to remind you that this is a place where God is on the move. Um, it's up to a lot. There's a lot you can do to support the vision and mission of this church and what God is doing, but one of those things is to support us financially. So uh, feel free to give, and I encourage you to give a recurring gift. Uh, you can do that on our Now page um, anytime you like, so be sure to check that page out. But this week we're in week two of our summer series uh, on Second Timothy with Pastor Jared bringing us a message today. Uh, it's a really good one, so I hope you guys give that a listen, uh, and I'll catch up with you in just a couple minutes. God, we count it a joy that you are here with us, that we are not alone, that you are faithful. God, and we put our hope and our trust in you no matter what it is that we're going through, no matter what is being done to us, no matter what choices we're making, you are faithful. You said you would be there from the beginning all the way to the end. And we trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody shouted, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome to Life Canton. My name is Jared. Won't he do it? All right. If you're new here, you're like, I don't, did, I miss, did I miss something here? That's okay. That's all right. We did a little bit of a call and response last week. It was powerful. It was fun. Uh, for those of you uh, who are a little bit newer to the more expressive side of church, the participatory side of church, this is newer for you. Hey, guess what? It's a little bit newer for me too. I didn't grow up this way. I grew up in a Northwest Iowa farming community with Dutch Reformed people. Uh, just to give you a little bit of insight, there was like a liturgy. You do this like, he is good. He is love endures forever. <laughs> you know, that, that, that was the call and response that I grew up with. A little less expressive, but anyway, we're trying new things, and we're glad you are here. If this is your first time, uh, welcome. I would love for, yeah, you get a clap, apparently, too. You made it. Uh, you made it through the doors. And if you would like to get connected, please do so. You can fill out a Connect card, meet in the Welcome Center at the lobby. We would love to meet you, hear your story, and help you get connected as well. And if you're watching online, there's a way for you to do that too. You can just type something into the comments. You can fill out a Connect card online as well. And then we'll get you plugged in too. Uh, we are in a series called Second Timothy. And uh, conveniently, we're looking at the letter to Timothy. It's his second letter, Paul's second letter to Timothy. He, writ, he wrote a first letter, um, but now he has a second letter that just requires a little bit more, a little bit more information. And specifically, uh, as Nathan mentioned last week, this is a discipleship letter. This is a discipling relationship between Paul and Timothy. Paul discipled Timothy in the gospel. Uh, but if you don't know much about history in the first century and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it's hard. It's hard to follow Jesus. It's hard to live out the gospel. And uh, discipleship looks a little bit different in the first century as well. So this is a discipling letter. And specifically in 2 Timothy, there's a lot more emphasis on discipline, on reminding Timothy to be disciplined in the gospel, be disciplined in the word of God, fan into flame the spiritual gift that God has given you. And I want to make it clear that discipleship 
and discipline, you, you can hear similarities there, right? Like these two words are inseparable. You can't be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, without an element of discipline. But you and I know we don't like that word in our culture, do we? We don't like the word discipline. I don't know that anybody in the room hears the word discipline and just feels like warm and fuzzy inside. Like, oh, just say it again, please, you know? Like we don't, we don't feel that way when it comes to the word or even the concept of discipline. I'll give you an example, and I'm going to need some call and response as well to help me out. I'm going to ask you some questions, and I want to have you shout out the answers, what you think the answers are. I know we're a little bit far off from this, but what do you think is the number one New Year's resolution? Lose weight, self-body improvement, working out. What percent gives up on that resolution within the first week of February? Just throw out a number. 43%. 43%. I don't know. That's okay, I guess. Uh, what percent actually believes that they're going to carry their resolution all the way through the end of the year? I heard it over here. 10%. 10%. That's not, that's not good. And then last question. What do you think is the number one reason why people give up? It's hard. Yep. The gym's too far. If it were three miles, then I would go. But no. Money, sometimes time. Guess what the number one reason is? <laughs> uh, that may be on the top 10 list. Uh, some, if you're online, you're like, what did they say? Lazy, uh, lazy. So there you go. No, the number one reason, they're doing it alone. They're doing it alone. They're all by themselves. Church, tell me that doesn't resonate with what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to be part of a church, not just in the first century, but in the 20. Are we in the 21st century? 21st century. I had to guess who's lazy now. Um, it's hard. It's hard to do it alone. And so much more with the context of what we're talking about. How much more for Paul and Timothy in their context? Paul's in jail as he's writing this, miles away from Timothy. And he's writing this letter, hoping it's going to arrive first of all, but hoping that the letter is going to make sense, hoping that it's going to encourage Timothy to stay the course, to be disciplined, even though it's hard, even though, Timothy, you might feel like you're doing this alone. We just sang about that. You'll never be alone. You'll never be alone. And I hope somebody needs to hear that this morning. You are never alone. But in that context, it's hard to feel that. It's hard to experience that. And especially when uh, when you really absolutely feel physically alone, Timothy is miles away. So what do we do with that? Let's pick up where Nathan left off. If you uh, have a Bible, you can go to Second Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love to give you one. And uh, that's our gift to you. Uh, we're in Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 13, and I'm going to read just to 18 today. Verse 13 says this, Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me. A pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. Let me stop there for just a second. So hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching that you learned from me. This is Paul talking. But just before that, um, there was a reminder that he had also been raised, Timothy had also been raised by his uh, grandma Lois and mama Eunice. Lois and Eunice, two wonderful women that left a legacy in the life of Timothy. They helped raise Timothy, but also Paul says, now the pattern that you learned from me. And, and that could sound kind of like an arrogant statement, like just, just uh, remember what you learned from me and only me. Uh, but there's importance here. 
into Timothy's context and why it's important that he remembers what he learned from Paul. Uh, Timothy is what you would use uh, the word to call him a mamzer, mamzer. It's basically the word for a bastard child. And the implications are far greater than the word that we would typically use, illegitimate. It's, it's much more of a harsher context. Basically what it means is that Timothy, in that context, to be a mamzer is to grow up in a world where you might as well just go be a beggar for the rest of your life. You have no purpose because you didn't have a father figure, because you weren't raised in a traditional sense. And if you didn't have a father figure, then that pretty much means there's no purpose for you and God has probably given up on you. That's the narrative that you've been given your whole life. And this is where Timothy finds himself. And I recognize that some are maybe uncomfortable with the word bastard. But imagine actually being in that position, being a young person where nobody will pour into you, where nobody will help raise you to set you off into life, where you're being told for your whole life that you are and will be an outcast of society. And then let's talk about the discomfort. Paul actually stepped into Timothy's context, into Timothy's status as outcast and disciples him And then says, hold on to the wholesome pattern that has been shaped by faith and love. Two things that a mamzer would never expect to experience. This is why Paul's saying, remember what you learned from me. This this is a loving, caring, shepherding statement. Timothy, remember what you learned from me. I, I love you. I care about you. Don't give up on this, Timothy. You can trust me. And then he goes on to say, not just me, but the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, check this out. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. There is power in the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit transcends time and space and even the distance that you and I feel right now, Timothy. There's distance in our relationship, physical distance, but that spirit is over that. That spirit transcends that. That spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now in you and now in me. And we share this bond together. The spirit and then the truth. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, guard this precious truth. These are two other words that are inseparable, spirit and truth. They have to come together. Well, what is this truth and why do we have to guard it or protect it or hold it dear? Why is it so precious? Well, in that context, truth was elusive in that culture. Everybody had their own definition of truth. You've got the Greek philosophy that is very much informing the culture at that time. Greek philosophy is very highly intellectual. If you were, it was this idea that if you were more educated, if you were educated enough, that you could achieve a sense of salvation in a sense. It was a, it was a thought called Gnosticism. If you just get educated enough, that is your salvation. So that, that's one truth competing with uh, a, a more of a minority way of thinking in that world, but a Jewish perspective, which we read about in the book of Galatians last year. 
The Jewish perspective is that you can follow these 613 laws, and through that, through living perfectly, you can attain perfection and eternal life. That's how you experience life. That's a truth. And that, that's competing with the Roman way of thinking, which is Roman nationalism and militarism, that it's through Caesar and the empire, the state. Those are your gods, essentially. And those, uh, that, that God, that way of thinking is all protected by this militaristic system that is in place. So that's a truth that you can hold on to. And out of all of that, by the way, <laughs> Any of those truths sound familiar in our context? Out of that truth comes the precious truth of this resurrected King Jesus who brings an upside-down kingdom of love and sacrifice that comes by way of grace and mercy and it has nothing to do with intellectualism, legalism, or militarism. It's a different kind of truth. Guard that truth. Timothy. See, the gospel, which is the word good news, isn't just know Jesus and pray a prayer so that you can go to heaven when you die. No, no, no. It's so much deeper and richer than that. The gospel, the good news, is harder than that in some cases. Paul, who's writing to Timothy, also writes to the Galatians, as I mentioned before. One of the things that he says that I think sums up this gospel idea, this concept so much more is this idea that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'm crucified with Christ. That's a different truth than just praying a prayer so that you can go to heaven when you die someday. It is so much deeper and so much richer than that. It's a whole life that is shaped by the cross, but then turns outward and breathes new life and new love into others so that they can live into their status as image bearers of God. And that includes everybody from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's a much more costly gospel then sometimes I think the gospels that we're fed. Pray a prayer, you can go to heaven when you die someday. There's so much more to it than that. It is costly to live into this kind of gospel. That's why you have to guard this precious truth. It's costly, so check out what happens in verse 15. As you know, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me even Phygelus and Hermogenes. Costly. Betrayal. Why? Because Paul is encouraging everybody to pray a prayer to ask Jesus into their heart so that they can go to heaven when they die? No. Nobody cares if you're going to say that. Nobody's offended by that. Nobody's going to put you in a prison for that. No, to say Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not is a big, bold, even political statement. But then to live into that and live as though everybody has value in that culture, that's way more costly. Who wants to sign up for that? Who wants to sign up for going to jail for preaching Christ and Christ crucified and Christ resurrected? 
Nah, I don't know. That seems hard. That seems like it requires discipline. Nobody wants to sign up for that. Accordingly, the whole province of Asia doesn't want to sign up for that. And then specifically, Phygelus and Hermogenes, they didn't want to sign up for it either. And as Nathan said last week, there's reasons for that. Paul's in prison as he's writing this letter. There would be all kinds of shame if you were associated with Paul for being in prison because it raises all kinds of questions. What does that say about your God? If all you do when you talk about your God is end up in prison, well, then he must not be all that powerful of a God. And if this gospel, this good news that you're preaching uh, lands you in jail and gets you beaten, uh, that doesn't feel good. (laughs) How is that a good news? How is that a gospel? I thought if I just, you know, give my life to Jesus that everything would be easier for me. Paul was deserted, betrayed by these folks he thought were his friends, and he names two of them, Phygelus and Hermogenes, which means Timothy probably knows these guys, probably knows what they did, probably knows the relationship that they had with Paul, probably knows now that that relationship has disintegrated. It's a good indication that they weren't all that disciplined, that they didn't understand what God was up to, that they weren't willing to pay the cost to be disciplined. They didn't sign up for the suffering part. They left me, Timothy, but I'm here for you. I won't leave you. At least I will encourage you through this letter. Do you know the pain of abandonment, of being deserted, of being betrayed? I know that feeling. Some of you know my story. I came here uh, three years ago, actually, to the day yesterday. So this is my three-year anniversary. And uh, (laughs) it's weird that we're clapping for three years of commitment, but uh, that's fine. I'm glad. In this day and age, that maybe is a big deal, actually. But uh, some of you know the, the story of why I came here. And specifically, I was at a church before, great church, good experience for 13 years, but there was some things that were growing within me, some passion specifically to reclaim an intentional way toward uh, discipleship, as well as to pursue racial justice in whatever form that looked like. And these, in my mind, and in my understanding of the gospel and the whole uh, Bible, is that these two things are actually inseparable. These are actually crucial to the gospel. I thought that was just widely known, but actually this is actually really hard to find in a lot of churches, which seems really ironic. But I found it with this church over three years ago. I said, I want to be a part of that. Started talking to Nathan, started talking to other folks who I thought were, we all had mutual agreements around these two specific areas. And I thought that many of these folks were going to be very close friends of mine. And then 2020 hit. And the opportunity to intentionally go after a different kind of discipleship and an opportunity to start to uh, consider what actually pursuing racial justice looked like and trying to pursue this whole gospel, I found out very quickly that was not a mutual agreement with some of these folks. 
and that a perspective of the whole gospel we didn't actually share. And it got hard. And they left. And they didn't just leave church, left the friendship, relationship in a lot of ways. And I've never felt so alone in my life. And I'm an introvert. (laughs) I can go spend two weeks in the woods and feel energized. But emotionally, I was alone. God, where are you in this? What was the purpose of all of this? It's like that New Year's resolution. The discipline of working out, but being entirely alone and wanting to give up. Me and Nathan were talking this last week, and he's like, I I shared that stat wrong last week. He shared a stat last week that said about 38% in the last couple of years, 38% of pastors have strongly considered quitting, not just their job and going to another job, but quitting ministry altogether. It's not 38%. It's 42%. I was just another number. And the top three reasons they want to quit, the number one is just stress. The second one, they feel they're all alone. And then the third one is a close third, is the political divisiveness. People don't want to be associated with things when it gets hard, especially in our culture. And then if we're formed by our culture and then we project that onto how we do church, it's no surprise. It's no surprise that we wouldn't want anything to do with things that feel like failure because our culture is built on success. And if it's hard, then I'm uncomfortable. And if I'm, if I'm uncomfortable, well, that's not what I was promised in this culture. And so what, if whatever it is that I'm associated with is making me uncomfortable, then I should disassociate myself from that thing. But the only problem is, is that's not the gospel. That's not at all what Jesus is concerned with. That's not the way of Jesus. And he doesn't seem to be concerned with our comfort and our worldly success. And yet, Jesus can relate to us in our discomfort, even there. Did you know that before he goes to the cross, he endures the cross, right? But even before that, he's in a moment where he's praying to the Father, and he says, Father, if there's any other way, if you can take this suffering, this cup of suffering away from me, it'll be easier. I don't want to suffer, God. I don't want it to be like this. I don't want to die. And it could have ended there. Could have ended there. But you know the reason we call him Lord, the reason we sing these songs in our expressive ways, the reason we shout amen, the reason we call him Christ and Messiah, which is Savior, is because he said, but not my will, yours be done. Amen? Amen, yes, but he invites us into that as well. He says, now you pick up your cross too. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. My agenda doesn't matter anymore. But the work of Christ in me, through me, 
and it's hard. See, Paul's friends have deserted him and he names people that Timothy probably knows. He's like, Timothy, you might feel betrayed at times too, but you're not alone. And here's the thing, Paul only spends one verse talking about the desertion, the betrayal, the abandonment. He spends far more time on the next section. I want you to see this in verse 16. May the Lord show special kindness to Onesiphorus and all his family because he often visited and encouraged me. He was never ashamed of me because I was in chains. There it is. There it is. That, that's the reason why the whole province of Asia Hermogenes, Phygelus, that's the reason they wanted nothing to do with Paul. They're ashamed. It doesn't seem to be going well for you, Paul. This doesn't seem to be working on the surface, Paul. We're out. But not Onesiphorus. Paul, you keep this suffering thing up, you're going to lose numbers. If you keep ending up in jail, people are going to stop giving, Paul. Paul, I, you got to find a way to make Jesus more attractional, Paul. Then people will come. Not Onesiphorus. No, he's right there. Check this out, verse 17 to 18. When he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. May the Lord show him special kindness again on the day of Christ's return. And you know very well how helpful he was in Ephesus. Paul mentions two instances in where this man, Onesiphorus, has come alongside and helped Paul, has encouraged Paul. He went to Ephesus. He went to, he went to Rome. We don't know a ton about this individual, but uh, it's pretty safe to say that he wasn't from these places. He wasn't from Rome. He wasn't from Ephesus. And so Onesiphorus is going out of his way to make sure to encourage Paul in the midst of his abandonment, his feelings of betrayal. To say, keep going, Paul. You've got this. Keep going. Jesus will strengthen you. His Holy Spirit is with you. He goes to Rome. He goes to Ephesus. These are places that are probably a great risk for Onesiphorus to go to. Foreign places where maybe he doesn't know the dialect or the language. But he certainly doesn't know the city of Rome. So he has to search everywhere to figure out where is Paul. And not only that, but he's probably having to have some conversations with people who he doesn't know. And saying, hey, do you know this man, Paul? He's been preaching about the resurrected King Jesus. And for him to say that comes at great risk to himself, where he himself might get thrown into prison for also believing that same thing. I don't know about you, but I look over on our wall and I think Onesiphorus just owns whatever it takes, wherever it takes us. That is like his code that he lives by. For the sake of of encouragement. Just show up. Just be another one in the fire. Paul spends more time talking about Onesiphorus. And not only does Onesiphorus find Paul, but then he lives out the call of Jesus that we see in Matthew 25, if you know a little bit about your Bible, where Jesus gives this picture, this vision of what it's like to actually live out the gospel. He says, I was I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And then this other part that we don't really like to talk about, I was in prison and you visited me. Onesiphorus lives out that call to visit Paul while he's in prison. We don't really talk about the incarcerated very much in church, do we? 
But yet this is an element that Jesus calls us into. This is a task that Jesus invites us into. And then he goes on to say, whatever you did for the least of these, you were doing that for me. If you want to hear some stories about visiting the incarcerated, you should talk to one of our partners, Michael Ewart. He's got some incredible stories about prison ministry. You want to see the face of God in a different way. Onesiphorus is a different kind of individual. And Paul is sharing this with Timothy Timothy to encourage him to say, don't lose hope. Don't give up. Even though you feel like you're working out alone, you're not alone. God is faithful and his spirit will bind us together in love. Even though it's hard, we've got to remind ourselves, won't he do it? He said he would. And he'll do it through you. And he's doing it through Onesiphorus. Do you have an Onesiphorus in your life? Somebody who will stick by you no matter what? Actually, they'll stick by you, especially when it gets hard. Those are the people in your life that you're, you know, okay, they love me. They, they truly believe for me. Those are incredible people, aren't they? See, I know for my experience, when I wanted to give up, I could sit there and dwell in the bitterness and the feelings of betrayal, but it didn't stay there because I had onesiphoruses in my life. And I want to name them, and I know that there's a risk every time you name somebody, then there's somebody that gets left out, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think it's important. But I think of Kevin and Jazzy and Neil and Richard and Ono and Laura and Dawn and John and Rita, all of these people who are just straight up encouragers. And here's the thing, not encouragement for the sake of building me up and and growing my ego, but to say, no, stay the course. Stay the course. Be disciplined. Don't give up. You're not alone. And it's a reminder to not focus on the external metrics and the measurements and the numbers that are not alone the measures of what true gospel success look like. Look at those metrics to determine whether or not God is actually moving in our midst. So what does this mean for you and me? We're invited into this. Bit of a carryover from last week. I want to give you an action step. Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching. Wholesome teaching not just any other kind of truth that's out there that's fleeting, that's about just being more intellectual or about being legalistic or about being nationalistic and militaristic. No, no, no. Wholesome teaching that says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. That teaching, it's a different kind of teaching. Hold on to that pattern and And be devoted to faith and love. And it requires discipline. Be disciplined in the reading of scriptures. Specifically, 2 Timothy. Uh, Nathan invited us to do that. Be, as we're in this series, be reading 2 Timothy. 
Do this in your small groups. Do this uh, together. Don't just do this alone, right? You're not alone. Read this together. Make sure that you're like, oh, you know what? I, I came across this part. I'm not sure I fully understand it. What do you think? How are you reading this? Talk about this. Process this with others, loved ones in your life, so that you can hold each other accountable to the discipline of living into the gospel. But then also, as you're reading, I'm going to give you a follow-up question. Does your understanding of the gospel make room for suffering? Are you allowing space for things to get hard to understand what God is doing? Because you're going to find that in 2 Timothy. The second thing is this. Ask God to show you someone who needs encouragement this week to be Onesiphorus for somebody, to be another in the fire for someone else. And some of you are like, I don't even need to ask God. I already know who that person is. Awesome. Write their name down. Commit to encouraging them. Encouragement comes in all different kinds of forms. You know what that person needs. Encourage them. Some of you like, I'm not sure who that is. Ask God, pray. God, reveal through your spirit who it is that I need to be an Onesiphorus for this week. So I was thinking about these two action steps. I'd I'd written them down um, well before Tuesday, I think. These were two things that were on my mind as I was reading through the text. And God shows up in a very unique way. As, uh, As I'm thinking about this and I need you to know that God is actually already moving in somebody else's life in these specific action steps, but also as a carryover from last week's message that Nathan gave. Nathan said, won't he do it? He said he would, right? And that hit somebody in a profound way. And then Nathan said, and won't he do it through you, right? And so I was texting with one of our partners in the church and talking about this a little bit more. And the reason I was texting him is because he and his family, they're going through a rough time right now. They found out just a couple weeks ago that their five-year-old daughter was diagnosed with neuroblastoma. And it is fast and, and uh, dangerous and scary and confusing. And they've already been in treatment. I mean, it was, it was moving quick. And I'm just trying to find a way to encourage him. And as we're texting Uh, This is one of the things that he said in our text exchange. He said, Nathan's question Sunday about what if God wants to do it through you really hit me. I've been praying for the last two years after therapy that God would work in and through me. And I see it in tiny ways sometimes. I've also always had a strong sense that my life has always been meant for way bigger than me. But when this happened, I told my wife, Not this way. No, I'd rather go back to the status quo. It didn't feel worth it. But then a lot of what I've read and listened to recently has been about suffering and it being the only way to resurrection and restoration. He said this. I didn't. I didn't prompt him to say this. He said, I thought it was just about me, but it's become so much bigger. We've seen a lot of people in our lives who have opened themselves up to love us in such huge ways. He's absolutely right. 
suffering, the only way to resurrection and restoration. To be crucified with Christ, to enter into the state of despair, only to come out the other end and experience resurrected life. And that pathway looks different for everybody, and that suffering looks different for everybody. But he says, I thought it was just about me. But we've actually seen other people, lots of people in our lives who've opened themselves up to love us in such huge ways. Do you see the transformation that took place? This sort of, this is me, God is working in and through me, but then realizing that that looks different. And the more I engage with the gospel and the more I understand that suffering is an element of this thing, and again, suffering looks different in all different forms, here and with Paul, to realize that that's actually the pathway to resurrection and restoration shifted for him. He's experiencing incredible pain in their family right now. And, and me, uh, me and uh, David, are one of our worship leaders, we tried to find a way to encourage. We're like, I don't know what we could do, but you know what? We can mow your lawn. They just moved into this house uh, and then they found out this news. And so on Fridays, we were going over and we were mowing their lawn. Just seems like a small task. It's an easy task for me, but it's a way to help out. Well, what I found out after this text exchange is that the neighbors were noticing that we were doing this and decided, hey, we hire out a lawn service for our lawn. Uh, we see your friends doing it and maybe they thought we were doing a horrible job. I don't know. And decided... <laughs> To say, you know what, we'll help out. And so they purchased and donated lawn service through the month of September for this family. See, this is... It, it has a, a spiraling effect in a good way. It has a, a rippling effect when the people of God just love each other well, just show up. Just bare minimum, show up. How can you be an Onesiphorus for somebody this week? Be an encourager. Show them unrelenting love. Do whatever it takes. Go wherever it takes you. Because here's the thing. Jesus did this for us. At great cost to himself. I want to invite you into that relationship if you don't know that Jesus, if you don't know that gospel. That's good news. I want to invite you to stand if you're able. If you have never said yes to Jesus, to finding your identity in Jesus, then I want to invite you to pray along with me. And this might be a prayer that you've said for the very first time. Maybe you're, you're like, I've, I've never prayed before. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'll pray for you. I'll pray with you. And then you just internalize that prayer in your heart and make it your own. And then whatever words you feel like you need to say, pray. So Father, we cry out to you right now. And God, there are many in this room who have experienced abandonment, who feel deserted, who feel betrayed in some cases. And they're wondering, God, are you going to do the same? Are you going to leave me alone? And you promise us you will never leave us alone. Thank you, Jesus. God, we invite you into our lives. 
For some of us who are praying this for the very first time, I want to give my life to you, Jesus, because you love me and you gave yourself for me. And so I say yes to you, Jesus. And if you need to shout that out loud today, you can do that. I say yes to you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing. But then lead us to do the same for others. There is a whole world hurting that needs to know your love, that needs to know your grace and your mercy, that needs to know that you have showed up. And so we will show up. Empower us by your spirit to show up for others. Hey, y'all. Uh, yeah, Pastor Jared gave us a great challenge to be an encourager uh, to those around us, like uh, the people that Paul talked about. So I encourage you to do that this week, uh, to be encouraged by your relationship with God and by the community of faith, and also to be an encourager uh, in the ways that Pastor Jared challenged us. But if, you, uh, if you're just thinking through anything in the message or just processing anything in general and you need prayer, uh, feel free to reach out via email or a connect card on our now page and let us know what you're going through so that we can pray with you um, and support you. This is a community where you belong and we want to do whatever we can to help you feel supported and encouraged. So be sure to do that. But other than that, hope you have a fantastic week. Hope you find encouragement in the Lord and are an encourager on his behalf. Have a blessed week and we'll see you again real soon.